0: This is uh, Gino Martini, the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and I'm really delighted to introduce Professor David Taylor from UCL. David is an old friend of mine. David, welcome to the RPS. Thank you, Gino. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great. I know you're well known to many people, but those who don't know you, it'd be great to get some background about yourself. I'm an emeritus professor at UCL, which sounds good, means retired, but won't leave
1: the office, really. What I do and have done all my life is health policy with a special interest in the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmacy profession. So I started off in the Office of Health Economics, which is, of course, industry funded. And then I moved on to various places, such as the Audit Commission. I was also an NHS chairman. But all the time, the real interest has been on using medicines to best effect. And David, is it also true that you you knew the Hanbury dynasty? Is this true? This is true. My father died of lung cancer in 1962 when I was 15. He was effectively the head of research at Allen Hanbury's before Glaxo took over, and I knew John Hanbury, I knew Maplethorpe,
0: all those people who were part of pharmacy history. Uh, absolutely. The founding fathers of the pharmaceutical industry. And the reason why I say that, David, is actually we're right next door to the museum. And did you know we actually got the hand collection here that's been donated to the RPS? Thank you. I haven't seen it, so I will take a look. So, David, it's obviously clear you, you're interested in health policy, focus on the pharmaceutical industry... Uh, I know last week uh, at the UCL New Year's Day lecture, we launched the new cancer policy for, for the 2020s. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about what that policy entails?
1: Well, it's a contribution to cancer policy rather than a worked out policy. What we were arguing, and I should declare interest here in that last year I had a grant from Merck to spend a year looking at cancer policy, but no strings as far as I knew. The argument would be that we need for the 2020s a new agenda or a strategy for cancer policy. We've got the NHS long-term plan, but that only takes us so far in a continuously evolving world where we need everything from better prevention, more focus on early diagnosis right through to treatment of advanced disease. This is now becoming increasingly possible and of course good palliative care for those who die of their cancers. We need a broad strategy for the 2020s in which pharmacy could play a key role.
0: I've looked at this policy very briefly and I've I've noticed some very interesting points so Figure seven some data about attitude towards pharmaceutical patents and the pharmaceutical industry. And being an ex-industrial pharmacist and again declare um, a GSK shareholder, I I noticed that the attitude towards the industry is actually kind of changing. That there's more support for the industry. Is this true? Have I read the data correctly? I've been doing this sort of survey on and off since the
1: nineteen seventies. So. Actually, the opinions are relatively stable. There's a lot of sound and fury around active groups, some saying that patents are the work of the devil and drive up prices, others very staunchly defending intellectual property. The public, on the whole, takes a reasonably balanced view. Yes, there are concerns about pharmaceutical prices. People aren't really aware that in the UK we have some of the best controls in the world, and overall spending on medicines is been about 10% of energy spend for several decades. It hasn't been going up as a proportion of total spend, but there are concerns. By and large, I would say there's a middle ground of about 60% of the population who do believe that intellectual property rights are necessary for funding research, along with government investment as well but have concerns, desires to see regulation and responsible behaviour on the what we could say the far left as about 15-20% who dislike patents because they think of it driving up prices, serving capitalism, depriving people in the poor world. Although the propensity of the British population to say, right, we should be giving more aid to the poor world for buying medicines is actually very low. And on the right-hand side, what we could say to people more aligned to Brexit and that sort of cause, we find criticism of patents because they're seen as an interference with the work of the free market. But the middle ground is pretty reasonable and has been stable for decades, to my knowledge, that about 60% of the population will say, overall, the pharmaceutical industry is doing a good job, but we need sensible regulation.
0: And this is where I share a story. I was once called the spawn of the devil for working in the industry. And that was from a, a medical healthcare practitioner. So I think sometimes there may be pockets of individuals who have had a bad experience and, and then blame the whole, or label the whole industry accordingly. What I also noticed from the data is that the British public are really scared of cancer, aren't they? I mean, 49% of, of the public are scared about cancer. And then after that was getting Alzheimer's, disease, dementia. Uh, did you find that quite surprising? I, I I thought I thought people would be more concerned about dementia, to be honest. Depends what you mean
1: by scared. Again, I find most members of the public much more sensible than some of the newspapers they read. Uh, that when you ask people, what is your biggest concern regarding health? Which areas, broad categories of disease, would you most likely see better treatments for, available to you and your family? then about half the population will say cancer. Now this is not unreasonable, about a third of us die in the end of cancer. Two thirds of all cancer deaths are in people my age, you know, over sixty-five, which you may not think is so serious, but nevertheless we want to fight for our lives. But nevertheless cancer is also the biggest disease related cause of death in people of working age and in children, excluding infants aged under one and all the other categories, cancer is the biggest single cause of death And I think that thought that our grandchildren and our children might suddenly be taken out by a condition, it's legitimate for the public to want to prioritise better treatment in that area. That doesn't mean to say you don't care about Alzheimer's disease, you don't care about arthritis. Part of the problem in Britain, we have a very cost-focused culture. So we're always telling the population, oh, if you have one thing, you can't have the other. In fact, I think good quality of healthcare is affordable, and we have a right to expect the NHS to be providing world-class care. So,
0: so, so David, you've mentioned the dreaded B-word Brexit. I mean, obviously, with the move of EMEA now to Amsterdam, you know, that's a real big blow. And I don't think many people quite understand what a big blow that is to the, uh, the pharmaceutical regulation scene in the UK. Well,
1: there's no point in crying ever spilt milk. Brexit is going through, it's very clear now, and we have to make the best of it. The loss of... The EMA, the uncertainty a lot of people feel, the concerns of people like Sir Paul Nurse at the Crick Institute, that this will undermine in various ways British research capacity and make it in some ways a less attractive place for industrial investment. A real, that doesn't mean to say they can't be overcome, but there's definitely a significant challenge there. The best economic information at the moment is we've lost about 2.5% of GDP that we would have otherwise had through the last few years of concern about Brexit. We must try to make sure that in future we get the investment, we get the confidence to go on making Britain the centre of biological research. Because in my view, if we want an industrial future... It's not going to be in heavy engineering, it's going to be in the biological sciences that the UK can generate the income needed for good welfare services.
0: Going forward, you mentioned the NHS long-term plan and its focus on prevention. Those who know me, I'm, I'm a big supporter of using science in pharmacies to try and help patients, detecting that undiagnosed type 2 diabetic. And more recently, the atrial fibrillation work that's ongoing in pharmacies now where are detecting asymptomatic ECG profiles and then referring on to consultants. What's the role of pharmacy pharmacist, and pharmacists in prevention? Have you got a view of what we can do with pharmacists in, in a clinical setting or community or in GP surgeries?
1: Well, pharmacists already, of course, in the, in the community and in hospital settings do a great deal to contribute to prevention. The obvious problem at the moment still is smoking. Some people may have seen the Christine Keeler scandal films recently, the real scandal there, of course, that both Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice-Davis died of smoking. That, for me, is one of the huge causes of ill health that we could do more to prevent. Beyond that, pharmacists can play important roles in picking up risk factors, I suspect, as we get AI-supported questionnaires computer-based programs, which people will find difficult to use at home, will do more a risk assessment in settings like community pharmacists. Pharmacists can pick up red light warning signs, although they're often a little late now. I think as we get more near-patient testing, we can again move on towards identifying disease so early that we've got a very good chance of cure as distinct from just amelioration. Obviously, if you think about world history, we start off with infections as the major cause of ill health. We, by and large, overcome that in the UK, although there are still long-term infection-related problems, not least of all cervical cancer, of course, which are still there to be controlled. But we have the technology if we apply it properly in a right social setting. The next great phase, the opportunity now, you mentioned atrial fibrillation, do the whole range of cardiovascular risk of controlling even blood pressure is not effectively controlled in our communities, you know. And if we combine that with stopping smoking with controlling lipid levels and looking out for additional cardiovascular problems, then there's a huge active role for community pharmacy now alongside the other elements of primary care as we build better primary care networks. The next great phase will be cancer control. The assurance of the population that the great majority of us needn't fear death until our 80s or over from cancer related conditions. That is the big opportunity to focus on building the base for that during the 2020s. You
0: see, David, that's a very interesting point you raise about living with what used to be a death sentence now, went well into our 80s. Well, I'll, I'll give you two examples where we can see more treatments at home because it gets to that point. The reason I say that is I used to work for a haemophilia company and you'd see young boys uh, self-infusing haemophilia products into their arms every day at the ages of 10. And so there's no reason why people can't self-medicate infusions of chemotherapy agents at home, you know, if you've really got that body of evidence to do so. And then, of course, what we see with CAR-T therapies is the blurring of boundaries between industry hospital and the patients. Some really exciting times. What excites you uh, in your policy you've seen about cancer these days? What excites me
1: may not be what excites very many other people, but it excites me that across a great range of technologies, from early stage detection through to late stage treatment, we're getting advances which may individually look small, But over time, in aggregate, we've been reducing cancer death rates by about 1% per annum overall aged standardized since the start of the 1990s. This continuing scientific endeavor, which is historically the biggest science project in the whole of human history, is continuing. And that will lead to technologies such as gene therapy, if you take haemophilia. The ultimate addressing there is to correct the underlying genetic defect. We can do that with a lot of cancer-related risks in future, and we will have the continuing means of adjusting the immune system to get better outcomes. But I'm not selling wonder cures here. The reality is we need advances in radiotherapy, advances in surgery, advances in diagnostics, advances in treatment, and in psychosocial support and care, enabling people to face up to risk early, not to be frightened of it. When you said scared earlier on, It's important not to be scared because that impairs our judgment. If we continue this way, we will not only have an affordable means of controlling cancers, we will have opened up technologies which are of profound value in the long term and the rest of healthcare and in areas like environmental control, food production, that fundamental understanding of biology. That's what really excites me. And I worry sometimes that in our approach to constantly worrying about costs, we nationalised healthcare because it's so important but because it's taxpayers' money we've always erred on the side of being a little mean, a little overcautious. never really welcoming advance, always worried about cost. We may fail to see that our future lies in real investment, significant investment in ongoing biological research and turning that into useful
0: instruments. Absolutely. We continue to invest in our universities continue to invest in the skills of our graduates and postgraduates and, and obviously continue to invest in the in the research and development ecosystem in the UK. And whether that is an opportunity now with Brexit to allow better tax incentives or or a reduction in fees, our universities are our research engines and without good universities I think we'll be in in, in serious trouble. What should you have, David?
1: Well, during the research for this agenda for the 2020s in cancer, I interviewed 30 leading figures across universities, government, medicine, etc. Solid support for university investment and, in fact, university spending in Britain recently, not least because, of course, the fees student pays, which are a concern to many, I think, reasonably. Current expenditure in the universities is relatively high. There's pretty solid belief that British science is still world-class. Where I think I have problems is in industrial investment and industrial policy. That we're not doing so well in, and perhaps Brexit will be the driver for really reconsidering how do we ensure that we do remain a place where there's real industrial investment, real high risk-taking. I like Boston in the States, I want to see more Boston-like centres in the UK. That's the opportunity. And I'm not quite sure yet that our policy makers are up to addressing the real problems. When you scratch the NHS, one leading figure said to me, at the end of the day, cost control will always trump new health gain, new welfare gain. That's, I think, the cultural problem we have to address.
0: That's a very interesting response, David. But ultimately, with Brexit and with deals in the United States, potentially, perhaps we can see more and more investment from the USA, with the UK. I tend to agree. I think British science is widely regarded. It will still attract R&D investment. I agree about industrial policy. I just wonder if industrial policy is linked to Brexit in that some organisations feel that once outside of the EU, but less attractive. And yet maybe the opposite is, is actually true, because we're opportunities of the United States.
1: Obviously, what we really want is good links with the EU, good links with Japan, good links with the US. We want balance. America has some extreme problems in health care. As you know, it spends about 17% of its GDP, gross domestic product, on health care. But at some of its outcomes are considerably worse than those in Europe, especially amongst disadvantaged groups. We were talking earlier, Gino, you know, about opioids and the deaths from there, which relates to having poor pain services, poor services for those most in need socially. So there are problems with American society, which we shouldn't ignore. At the same time, it is the world's most innovative culture. So much of innovation is now centering on the US. We need to square that circle to get the benefits of a good welfare system and a really creative industrial policy. There have been stories recently that if we form trade deals with the US in the run-up to the general election, some people were claiming that the drugs bill would go up by £500 million a week, which is as dishonest as claiming that leaving Europe would give us an extra £350 million a week for the NHS. Unfortunately, the level of political leadership in this area has been deplorable. There is no risk of the drugs bill running out of control. What we should do with the U.S., though, in forming better links, is to try to make sure we plug into a genuinely innovative and supportive approach in a way which doesn't always leave people in industry wondering that they they invest here, they get stabbed in the back. That we need that balance without spending like there's no tomorrow. In the half century I've been watching pharmacy policy, you know the old joke about pharmacy being at the crossroads. The truth is pharmacy has tremendous potential to develop itself as a healthcare profession on the one hand and a real science-focused profession on the other. I hope it makes it. You mentioned the atrial fibrillation work which has been going on. These are examples of extending the clinical role, not as some sort of handmaiden to medicine, but as direct clinical actors. That excites me and there are opportunities coming up in council which are huge on that front. At the same time, medicines, as we get an older population, as we move towards world demographic transition, the world being healthier, the role of medicines will be more important, not less important, in maintaining good health rather than just treating disease. That excites me. Doing something about it is much easier to say big pictures with words than it is to deliver. But hopefully, in the time left to me, I will go on pushing in those areas.
0: I think the, um, having recently tried to book an appointment to see a GP and been told it took me four weeks to see my GP, I do think it's the opportunity now that pharmacists here are available, uh, we can actually step into the breach and with the use of technology and diagnostics you know, really make a big difference and, and be seen as uh, well-being and prevention heroes. Because at the end of the day, we have the consultation rooms, we have the technology, we can make a difference. I think it's exciting times there, it really is.
1: Utterly agree. One shouldn't make claims which aren't substantive. As you know, pharmacy is a mixed bag from people who only wanted to dispense and have a safe life through to people who really wanted to be pioneers. I hope the pioneers will win and we will move towards that really effective, really good value for money clinical profession.
0: David, as always, an honor and privilege for you to see us in the RPS and give us your insights. Always well worth doing, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.